This is Fireproof Your Retirement with Michael J. Markey, Jr. Fireproof Your Retirement is 30 minutes of real questions, real concepts, and real answers. Michael's passion is to teach listeners the same thing he's taught clients and prospects, how to take control of their money. It's been this philosophy which has garnished Michael and his firm Legacy Financial Network national attention. In 2010, AM Best featured them as one of the top 10 most innovative agencies in the country. In 2014, Insurance Newsnet magazine featured Michael as a local celebrity and life health pro, named him hero of the insurance industry. Michael's even been given the Moving America Forward Award by William Shatner. Now here's your host, Michael J. Markey Jr. All right, and welcome. We've got a fun show in line for today. But first, I want to thank all of our listeners, the longtime listeners at our flagship 102.9 FM WFUR here in Grand Rapids. But we want to say welcome to some new listeners at 1340 AM WJRW News Talk. And up there in Ludington, let's not forget you guys on 98.7 WLDN. So we're excited for all these new people. I want to thank uh, producer Mitch here for being um being behind the scenes, making the show what it is today and for helping us achieve some of this growth. This is the show. It always sounds weird when you first hear this, but I'm telling you, it will happen. This is the show that our goal is to change your life. Our goal is to change your life by changing the way you look at money. Because most, too many people look at money wrong. We spend so much time trying to figure out how we're going to grow our money, how we're going to make our bottom line larger. And that sounds um, realistic. It sounds what we should do, that if I have more money, I'll have more security. But it doesn't always happen that way. We'll get to that. So our goal, though, is to change your life by changing the way you look at money. Because money doesn't have meaning. If money had meaning, people on their deathbed or shortly before They would do what? They would share with family and friends, loved ones, how fulfilled their life had been because of how large their investments had grown to. So money doesn't have meaning. It doesn't make it evil. It doesn't make some big bad thing, but it just doesn't have meaning. It does, on the other hand, have purpose, and its purpose is to give or to spend. So we want to help you clarify what those goals, what those objectives of your money is, and that, in in turn, can change your life. So today we're going to talk about a few different topics. On a first break here, let's talk about rate of return. And does making your investments larger lead to more security? Here's one of the neat things that I found. And so when somebody enters into our process, we don't um, dictate that based on level of assets. It's based on where they're at in life. They need to be at retirement, excuse me, at retirement or near retirement. That's really important. We're not working with 30 and 40 year olds. Nothing against them. That's just not what our specialty is. But from there, there's a three-pronged, I guess you'd call it qualifier. That's do they need help, do they want help, and can we help? And I don't care how much somebody has. If the answer to any one of those questions is no, we don't work with them, they don't get into the system. And on the flip side, I don't care how little somebody has. If the answer is yes, do they need help, want help, and we can help, we're going to meet with them. Why on earth wouldn't we just because they don't have enough assets? That doesn't make sense to me. And the reason I say that is one of the neat things that's happened from that is I've found whether you have 100,000 or say 10 million, we've got clients everywhere in between. It doesn't matter what you have. A humble person will always wonder, is it enough? Will it last long enough? 
can I retire? And that's what's kind of cool. Hearing that and seeing that over and over, do I have enough? I've found that it really doesn't matter what you have. If you're one of those people that think, oh, I've got more money than I could spend in lifetimes. Well, generally those people go broke. I like to call them football players because they never push off any needs. It's, well, I've got more money than I could ever spend. I'll spend this, spend that, buy this, buy that. And they go broke. So those who don't know or they question, it's going to be stronger for some than others. But the question, do I have enough? Those are That's called a humble person. And so if you have, let's say, 500000 500000 won't quite feel like enough. But if 500000 grows to 700000 here's what happens. When five goes to seven, you realize that you like seven more than you like five. And once you have seven, you don't want five anymore. You want to keep seven. But if five didn't feel like enough, seven doesn't quite feel like enough. If you don't spend more than, let's say, 20 or $30 or whatever it is for you, if you don't spend more than 20 or $30 on a pair of jeans, once you get 700000 do you suddenly start buying $300 designer jeans? I doubt it. Do you suddenly start buying $100 pair of jeans? I doubt it. It's probably not going to happen. Because those who spend more every time they have more, we have a word for those type of people. And no, it's not millennial. It's broke. Those who spend more every time they have more, they never have anything because they spent today's dollar yesterday. So if your 500000 grows to 700000 you don't suddenly start becoming some lavish spender. You don't suddenly start to say, hey, my retirement works now. I got it. We're good. Focusing just purely on growth will not create any more security. But you know what I have found? If 500 grows the opposite way, now most of the time, and by most, I mean probably about 70% of the time, it will go, it will grow. It'll go to that five, maybe we'll go to 700,000. But every once in a while, five will not grow. It'll go down because you retired at the wrong time. Maybe a downturn right before retirement, maybe a downturn right after retirement. But if 500,000 becomes 300,000, because that sometimes happens. And it happens to good people. It happens to people who have built plans. If five becomes three, if you didn't feel comfortable at five, if five didn't feel like quite enough, three won't feel like anywhere near enough. And if you used to have five and you have three, here's what pe- how people react generally. This is what I find fascinating is watching how people react when things change. When 500,000 becomes 300,000, if five didn't feel like enough, three won't feel like anywhere near enough. And some will just put their head in the sand and they'll go broke. That's not the typical person though. Others, what do they do? They lower their spending. Now they don't lower their spending to such a degree. They're not going to live on, uh, like Dave Ramsey would say, beans and rice and rice and beans. Or, you know, hot dogs on Friday with the mac and cheese if it's a good week. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to bring their spending down to a level that's now in line with the 300,000 with their new account balances. That's typical. So it never comes back. It might come back a little bit, but they didn't bring it down to such a degree that it was designed to be able to recover. Now here's what's more um, disheartening. How about the people who go back to work? And I'm not saying a good day's hard work isn't a good thing. It absolutely is. But those who go back to work in retirement because they just retired at the wrong time, the market just didn't behave properly. All of a sudden, that job they didn't like, that job they complained about, that job they said was a horrible job, they were ready to be done. Now, all of a sudden, they'd love to have that job back. It doesn't look so bad, but they can't get that job back. Generally, it sometimes happens for some, I'm sure, but most don't get that job, and they don't get a job at that level. They get a job that's paying, I don't know, a third less. So the job they didn't really used to like, now they really wish they could have back, and so they get this job paying a third less, and they go back to work, and they keep working. They wait for the 300000 to become four hundred, and then it's 500000 You'd think, and 500,000, they retire, but they don't. Why? 
because they remember when five became three before. And they remember how five became three once before, and they don't want it to happen again. So they wait till it becomes 550 and then six. And you'd think at six they should be able to retire, but they won't. They'll keep going because they, you know what, they find out that six feels better than five, but they don't have a plan. This is what happens so many times is people in retirement, they don't have an income plan. They have this quote unquote retirement plan, but it's, you know, the funny thing is I meet all these people who tell me they have a retirement plan and the one thing they can't show me is something in writing that's an actual plan. Now tell me how that makes sense. Or they work with a retirement advisor and the one thing that retirement advisor has never done is talked about social security or taxes or fees how on earth can you read a retirement advisor if you've never talked about Social Security, which may not be your largest source of income, but it's a meaningful one. And so that person who goes back to work, they don't go back to work till they get their 500 back. They go back to work until it's 600, then 650 and a 700. And oftentimes I've noticed that they work almost not till the day they die, but to the point at which they can't enjoy their money. So understand us just trying to make your, if all we do is focus on the bottom line, the net worth, it sounds like if I have more, I'll um, be more secure, I'll feel better. But if you don't have a plan that shows you, okay, here's how we're going to distribute assets, then you'll never feel good about it because you got to understand that this is going to be different. If you, when you retire, if you're 65 years old, the average person I work with started working at about 15, 16, 17 years old. That means you've been getting a check for 50 years, 40 years, 45 years. You've been used to check, 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 check. And all of a sudden, what we're saying is, all right, we're going to stop these checks. We're going to pause them. No more checks. You're going to live off what you've saved. You got, are you telling me that you don't think there's some anxiety when all of a sudden we do that? I'm going to tell you what, there's a lot of anxiety. You stop the checks coming in. You've been used to it for 40 years. And now all of a sudden you're not going to have checks coming in and you don't have a plan on how you're going to replace those checks. Your plan is just, well, we'll see what the market does. I'll just take money from there because the market's always up. But you and I both know there's times when it's down and when it's down, it's down bad. So if you don't have a plan, if you've realized a little bit from today's conversation, and we're going to come back to this, that you need to be talking about Social Security, you need to be talking about fees and taxes and an income plan in retirement. Maybe you've been focusing on the growth of money rather than the purpose of money, which is to give or to spend. If that's you, I'm telling you, we're local. We've helped lots of families here. We've walked this journey many, many times. Give us a call, 616-589-4004. 616-589-4004. We're in Grand Rapids, Holland, and Muskegon. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Mike Markey is full of information, but as you probably already know, he gets so excited to give out that information that he speaks at about 900 words per minute with gusts up to 1,300. Now's your chance to get that information at your own pace. Mike has written a book called Fireproof Your Retirement, which can be found on Amazon. It covers many of the same topics we cover during the show, including income planning, asset allocation, gifting, taxes, and much more. As you know, Mike is all about paying it forward. That is why 100% of the proceeds go to local fire departments. Once again, that's Fireproof Your Retirement by Michael Markey, which can be found on Amazon.com. All right, and welcome back to Fireproof Your Retirement. Yes, this is a show on finances, but it's a show aimed to actually to answer specific questions. So one of the things that I've been noticing lately again is um, higher rates of return. And where a lot of financial plans fail, if we actually have a plan, is that we have these inflated rates of return. I was looking at a life insurance policy um, this week, 
and it hasn't done anything near what they were told it would do. It's about, I think it was maybe 20 years old, and it's about half of the performance that was projected. Now, this was a policy old enough that back then the insurance agent was able to put in a projected rate of return. They can't do that now, so it is different. But they put in a 9% rate of return. And then the client said, well, you know, but the market's supposed to make 12. We've heard numerous times. They talked about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey says that the market should make 12%. And I'm not going to say Dave is wrong on this show. Not yet. If you don't, uh, if you're new, um, one of the things that I was asked to write a few years ago for about two years until the uh, publisher was bought out, but I wrote a piece called Seriously Dave, which um, argued or refuted some of the math that um, Dave Ramsey and other entertainers will use. But here's the thing. What rate of return is a good rate of return to use when making, when projecting out future values? And this is something that's not talked about enough. We'll see that people argued about 8% or 10%, 12%, and they'll give you mathematical analysis, and they make it so difficult. And the average person gets lost when we can simplify it. And I believe this, if you can't articulate your point, if you can't, that doesn't mean you don't get it. It just means you don't get it good enough. You don't get it well enough, I guess, would be the appropriate way to put it. So here's what we're talking about. Why does the academic world say that future rates of return are going to be lower than what we've experienced in decades past? And there's a few pieces to this, but the most simple is what we call a risk-free premium. Let me say that again, a risk-free premium. What does that mean? Here's an easy way to think about it. When I got into this business, CDs were paying 7 or 8%. Now, I want you to imagine that back then when CDs were paying 7 or 8%. Were you willing to buy a financial product, say a stock or a bond or a mutual fund? Were you willing to take risk for something for 7 or 8%? Now, again, you can get 7 or 8% in the CD. Now, not right now. We're playing in the imaginary world. You know, this was a decade or so ago. When you used to be able to get 7% in a CD, were you willing to settle for 7% if it were a mutual fund or 7% if it were a stock? Well, the answer is clearly no. Why on earth would you take risk to get 7% when you could take no risk and get 7% in the CD or relatively no risk minus the, you know, the bank going out of business and then FDIC not kicking in, et cetera. So back then you needed a higher rate of return to motivate you to invest in the market. It couldn't be seven, it needed to be higher. Well, now CD rates are 1%. So would you be willing to take 7%? If a CD only pays one, would you be willing to take seven to invest in the market? Well, a lot of people are. So here's the thing. When interest rates, the risk-free rate was 7%, you didn't you didn't settle for seven, the same thing to take on risk, but now that interest rates are one, you're definitely willing to take seven. You may even be willing to take, say, five. But here's what's kind of interesting. If at 1% you're willing to take five, then the question becomes, then at 7%, are you willing to only take 12? Hmm. Think about that. Or I'm sorry, not even 12. It'd be 11, wouldn't it? Did that one wrong. <laughs> Oops. So if at, let me you know let's back up if at a 1% interest rate if you can get 1% in a CD there are people that would be happy with a 5% rate of return in a stock or a bond okay but if you were happy if you're one of those people that's would give up 1% and maybe 5 in in, in exchange for 5 
When there was when you could get seven percent, would you be willing to give it up in exchange for eleven? See, probably not. See, it doesn't feel the same, does it? Going from one to five is a five time rate of return. It's only an extra four percentage points, but it's it's doubling your rate of return two and a half times. Whereas seven to eleven, it's the same extra four percent, but it doesn't feel nearly as good. It's like, well, if I'm only getting eleven. Heck, I'll take seven without the risk. So risk-free premium just states that with lower levels of interest rates, which, where are we now? Are we at high levels of interest or low levels? Low levels. I mean, extremely low levels. And how close are we to seeing CDs again at 7%? How about in the 80s when you had CDs double-digit percentage points? You wonder why you needed to see 14 and 15, 20% you know, advisors in the 80s talked about 18% compounded rates of return. Was that more realistic at the time? Yes, but it's a function of interest rates. When inter- when you could get 12 in a CD, you needed 18 to take on risk. When you could get, when I got in this business, when you could get seven in a CD, you needed maybe 12 or 14 to take risk. And now that you can get one in a CD or only get one, it might only take five or 6% to take risk. So risk-free premium just states as interest rates come down, the level, the threshold that is needed to motivate somebody to take risk comes down. It's lowered. So we're in a period of lower rate of rates of return. And what that does, the lower levels of risk-free rate equals a lower level of risk rate. So until interest rates recover, we're not going to see the type of returns that we once saw. So what's more conservative? Building a financial plan on I know so numbers, like I called it in my book, I called it I know so numbers versus I hope so numbers. I hope that you'll make 9%. But I know if we're wrong and you don't make 9%, how likely is it that I'm wrong and you make more than 9%? Or is it more likely, let's say it this way, is it more likely that if I'm wrong and we project nine, Is it more likely that if I'm wrong that it's going to be above 9% or is it more likely that if I'm wrong it'll be below 9%? Hmm. It's probably more likely that it'd be below. And would it be a little bit below or a lot? What's more likely? Probably, you know, meaningfully. Now, if we do, say, 5%, maybe that's more of an I know so number, but if we're wrong, what are we more likely to be wrong? Which direction? Higher or lower? We're probably more likely, if we're going to be wrong, and it's not actually a 5% rate of return, we're probably more likely that the rate of return you experienced was higher. If we predicted a lower rate of return in a plan and you get higher, the math works better. You're good. It's not a problem. And if we're wrong and it's lower, it's probably pretty close still. It might be 4.5 or 4. So let's make sure, number one, that we're using realistic rates of return. We can't just simply look at historical averages and go, well, you know, Mike, Dave Ramsey showed this chart that over the last 70 years, the average rate of return of the S&P 500 is 10%. Well, we got to make sure, was was the math accurate? Because I've noticed, and I'm not picking on Dave here, but I've noticed that the math isn't always accurate. And number two, where were interest rates during the majority of those periods? Were they like they are today or were they higher? And how quick are we going to have those interest rates come back? We're long ways from where they used to be. So again, if you've got a plan and you're finding out that that plan is using rates of return that maybe aren't that sustainable, give us a call. We're local. Grand Rapids, Holland, Muskegon, 616-589-4004. 616-589-4004.
We're going to take one more break and then we'll be right back. When asked, most people will tell you they plan to file for Social Security at either age 62, 66, or 70. But for the vast majority of Americans, none of these ages will provide them with their largest lifetime benefit, and it could cost them thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in benefits. To ensure you maximize your lifetime Social Security benefit, you need the Social Security Maximization Report from Legacy Financial Network. More than 20,000 calculations, including life expectancy testing. Visit us online at LegacyFinancialNetwork.com. You will know exactly what to do and exactly when to do it. All right, and welcome back to the last segment of Fireproof Your Retirement. Happy to be with you guys again today. I truly do appreciate everyone joining us and tuning in. So one of the questions that I get a lot is, should you pay off the mortgage? Mike, how much should I add to my mortgage payment? That's kind of a loaded question. So with some folks, what we'll do is we'll make a goal. And I can think of one couple we're working with right now that what we've done is we've figured out how much they need to add to their payment to have it paid off by retirement. That's a pretty good goal, and it motivates some people. And one of the things we need to do as planners, whether you're a retirement planner or a financial planner, investment advisor, whatever term you give yourself, we need to find out what motivates you. And so for this particular couple, figuring out how much they needed to add to their monthly payment to have it paid off in, I think, six years when they retire, that was something they got really excited about. But sometimes that's not a good idea. Now, how on earth could it be a bad idea to ever pay off the house? Because we have to look at this. Again, money doesn't have meaning. It only has purpose to give or to spend. A paid off house achieves two things. Number one is security. The security of, I don't care what happens to the government, what they mess up. I don't care what happens in Russia or what Wall Street does. I've got my paid off house and you can't mess with that. There's a lot of truth to that. And I get it. It's emotional. And the other reason we get a paid off house. So one is security. I know I got it and I know you can't take it. I just got to pay the taxes and keep it up. Number two, it's wealth transfer. Transfer of wealth to the next generation. Knowing that you have a payoff house, maybe one of the kids will move into it. Maybe the kids will sell it and split the proceeds, but you're leaving something for that next generation. We feel good about that. But that's not important to everybody. And so if you're paying off a house just because you said it's more secure, that's not always the case. I was meeting with a couple here recently where they didn't have very much in liquid savings. They had just about $10,000 set aside. And you may be saying, oh, wow, that sounds like quite a bit. If you're spending three or $4,000 a month, which a lot of you listening are, $10,000 sacked away isn't much. Because a blip in the market, you might lose your job. Your health changes, you might lose your job. Your attitude changes, you might lose your job. Those things are more likely as you get close to retirement. 62 years old, you're more likely to get laid off in a downturn than you were at 42. At 62 years old, your health is more likely to be, you know, go to the wayside than it was at 42. And at 62 years old, you're more likely to say the wrong thing, to not have as great of an attitude when you get that brand new boss directly from, let's say, MSU who's got an MBA and whatever that tells you everything you don't know because they've got a degree you don't have you're less likely to be politically correct with them at 62 than you were 42. So we do lose employment sometimes. Now this couple wanted to really boost their um, monthly payments so they could have it paid off. Now that's a good goal and it's a motivating goal for some, but it would be detrimental to their financial health in this case because they don't have a cushion. So what we've done with folks like that is 
we need to start putting those dollars in cash. Now we maybe get the cash up to 15,000 or 20,000. It's gonna be a reflection of how much you spend each month. I would say as a minimum, we have six months worth of uh, income put away. We wanna see that we have the income. And then in the financial plan, if that 401k, that IRA, you gotta make sure you have some green money. Now green money, money, if you're new to us, is stable dollars. Dollars that when we have a downturn lose less than 5% because what I found about downturns from talking to hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of people now, here's what happens with a downturn. I've just, I've heard it so many times. We won't see it coming. This whole idea that, well, we're gonna, we've got these triggers or we got these indicators or we got these great, this masterful team, I don't know, in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco that are gonna tell us when the market's gonna go down, up, left, right, sideways. Come on. If it was that easy to you know, just guess and predict the markets, why would we need mutual funds? Why would we need Vanguard? Why would you need Fidelity? The world would be different. So let's take that off the table that we can't just um, predict the market. We can't time the market. And so we need to make sure there's some green money there because one of the last things we wanna happen is that we have a downturn right before retirement or right into retirement. As we discussed earlier at the beginning of the show, Downturn right at the beginning of retirement, right at the end of the retirement, that's gonna derail everything. It's like fumbling on the one yard line. I said that the other day and somebody goes, well, which one yard line, your own or your opponent's? Does it matter? If you're about to score and you fumble on the one yard line, that's bad. And if you just got out of your end zone and you fumble on the one yard line, the other team's probably scoring, so that's also bad. So let's make sure we have, before we can start accelerating the payments on the house, I know this may not sound interconnected, but it is. Before we can start accelerating the payments on the house, we need to do what? We need to make sure we have some green dollars in the the save, you know, in the investments, because if you lose your job unexpectedly, and by the way, the older you get, the more likely it is you're gonna lose employment because the economy goes bad, your health goes bad, your attitude goes bad. So we gotta have some safe dollars there because what those safe dollars do, they give you a choice. They give you the ability not to have to make a instant decision if you get laid off that you have to go take Social Security the next day or you have to take your pension or you have to go back to work or you have to do this or you have to sell the house or you have to move in with kids, whatever that may be. It gives you choices. And I found that people with choices make better decisions, don't you? Don't you agree? How could you argue with that? So number one, we gotta have some green dollars in those investments. And then number two, we gotta make sure you have cash. I would say at a minimum, before we get really aggressive at paying off the house, no matter what, there better be five grand of cash, that's your first milestone. But before we really get aggressive paying off the house, better have at least 15,000. Now that number is gonna go higher if you spend more. If you spend 10 grand a month, guess what? 15 grand's kind of a drop in the bucket. You better have, I don't know, 60 grand in cash. If you spend three grand a month, 15 isn't too bad of a number. Maybe it still needs to be closer to 20. But that's when you really need an individual. You need a planner to help you with that. So number one, we gotta make sure there's some green dollars, stable dollars. Don't go by the name of the fund. You gotta find out, you know, are, is there a historical performance or period where we can see that these things lost 5% or more. Find some mutual funds within your 401k or in your investments that are stable. Don't lose more than 5%, those will be green. Let's make sure we have a good chunk there. Then we go to savings. Have $15,000 in savings and checking, and then we start to accelerate the mortgage payment if that's something that motivates you. And if it's not, oh well. Um, then we pick something else. The other alternative to this is, let's say you have a $60,000 mortgage. What you can do, or you got 60000 left on the mortgage, because the other problem to that is, I was talking to a couple today, um, they're gonna have a pretty big gap 
the amount of what their Social Security is going to provide and what they spend, there's a gap there. And I said, so what happens if you get down to the last, let's say, $10,000 and then all of a sudden you lose your job? And he goes, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about that. I go, well, that's why you're here. And he goes, well, what would happen? I guess my payment would be lower. And I go, it would? Why? Why would your payment be lower just because you owe less? You owe less next month than you did this month. Is your payment any lower? Well, no. I go, so if you do this really good job and you take that, let's say, $60,000 mortgage that's left you know, on the house and you get all the way down to ten grand, or let's say thirty grand, and then you lose your employment, do you want to start pulling out of investments just so you can make your mortgage payment? He goes, well, no. I go, what if you can't get the type of employment you've had in the past that allows you to make that payment? I don't know. I guess he goes, well, I could refinance. I go, can you? Can you really refinance? Because now you don't have a job. Oh boy, exactly. And what if you lose your job just when it happens the market's down? Now things are a real mess. So paying off the house, it's a common question that I get quite a bit. It's one of those that there is no blanket answer. There's no real good answer until we know your personal situation. And you get an answer that you can understand. And that, first and foremost, is something that always needs to happen. When you ask these type of questions, it has to be something you understand. If you don't understand it, it won't be motivating and it won't inspire you to make better financial decisions. So until next week, I am your host, and this has been another episode of Fireproof Your Retirement. This has been Fireproof Your Retirement. For more information, contact Michael J. Markey Jr. of Legacy Financial Network. Call toll-free at 855-LF-NETWORK or online at LegacyFinancialNetwork.com. All matters discussed during the show are for informational purposes only. Each individual situation may vary and the opinions expressed here may not apply to everyone. Materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources and no representations can be made as to its accuracy. All ideas and information should be discussed in detail with one of our qualified representatives prior to implementation. Mike Markey and Legacy Financial Network are not affiliated with or endorsed by the Social Security Administration or any government agency.